Ladies and gentlemen, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians, the book of Colossians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Colossians, I'm kidding, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's one of the prison epistles of Paul, the book of Colossians, we're going to be starting a new series, there it is, Christ above all, Christ above all, okay, Now, when, when my father passed, my father, some of you know, some of you do not know, my father was, uh, was killed in a car accident when I was 12 years old. And when my father passed, it was a, it was a difficult time. As you can imagine, I was the oldest of three children. I was 12 years old at the time. And my sister was 10 and my brother was 8. And it was a difficult time. It was a difficult time for my mother just being in the house that we had lived in for about, I think, 13 or 14 years. And so it was a, it was a really difficult time for her. And after my father passed, we, uh, we continued living in that house for about a year, and it just became too much for my mom. She, uh, she later told me, she said, every little sound, every little thing she heard was just a reminder of, of my dad. And so she felt like she needed a, a new break, a new start, and the same thing for the kids. And so she moved us where we lived, which we lived out in the, in the bush, in the country, um, about 30 minutes from the little city of Wilson, which is about 60,000 people. So we moved in the city, and in that I started a new school. And we'd already been halfway through the term, so for me it was a, it's a big change. It was a lot of changes all at once. And what was interesting for me as I went through that experience was the fact that it just seemed like there was pressure to, to conform to my new surroundings. Now, the people who had been in that school all their lives, they didn't even realize it. They, they spoke differently. They dressed differently. They talked differently. I think I already said that. They, they acted a little bit differently. Uh, and just a simple example, uh, for those of you that remember, remember this, and maybe this wasn't a style in Australia, but for a while there was a style of jeans that had these little zippers on the bottom. And you could unzip the zipper, and you know, if you wear boots, and they were... They were flashy. They were awesome, you know. We, and we, in my school, we everybody wore them. There was a big fashion statement. Well, I moved to this school, and I'm wearing these jeans, and everybody's laughing at me because it wasn't a fashion statement, and they weren't that awesome. Uh, and so, just one of those little things. It, the pressure to conform to to my environment was immense. And those that live in that surroundings of that school, you know, they didn't even realize they were putting this pressure on me to to be like them. Someone who moved in that surroundings, it was all new for me. Well, the, the thing for us in this world is we live in a world that desires to conform us to its image. We live in a world that is ruled by Satan. Uh, John says that in 1 John chapter 5, he says that the world system is ruled by Satan. It lies in his hand. We know that Satan is the god of this age. He, he is given that authority by Christ until Christ comes back and establishes himself as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, So we live in a system that is dominated by Satan and his angels, his demons. And so that, that world system is everything opposed to God. It seeks to conform us. In Romans 12, we often talk about uh, Romans 12.1, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, we, we emphasize the transformation because we'll talk about the Word of God, and that is true. One thing we forget is, is the conformation, is the world is seeking to conform us. There's only two 
paths in this world. You're either being conformed to the world and its ideas of things, or you're being transformed to a true new reality in Christ. Right? There's a way God views things, and that's called the truth. And it's a way the world looks at things, which is called error. And the world stumbles upon truth from time to time, but they don't know the truth and they actually suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans tells us. And so what we have here in the book of Colossae is we have a group of believers where you have the world creeping into the church through the form of false teaching and or false teachers. We're not sure if it was just the teaching itself or there were actually false teachers. Um, the great thing about the book of Colossae is that Paul is, is very general in his instruction. And I believe this is by design by the Lord, so that the book of Colossae, rather than addressing, if he just addressed a, a specific Gnostic heresy, then what, what, what implication or application would that be for us even today? Now, there's little forms of Gnosticism, but the way Paul has addressed this book is that it has been a benefit for believers for all time in addressing heresy and addressing cultural drift, as we say. And one of the things we'll deal with as we go through this book is we'll deal with philosophy and tradition and religious activity all to earn God's favor. We're going to be dealing with uh, a viewpoint that subjugates Christ to everything else. And so we're going to be looking at all these things. You're going to see immensely how it's practical for the modern age. And one of the things that John Calvin says is that the book of Colossians shows, distinguishes the true Christ from the false Christ. And so we're going to see that today. Now, as I thought about the book of Colossians, and as I prepared, I kept thinking about some of the philosophical forces that are arrayed against us. And, and, I, and just some of the big ones in our world are humanism. Right? The humanistic ideas dominate our society. It's the idea that, that humans can explain everything. Right? You, you, you see this wherever you look. You know, on TV, you talk to people on the street and, and they would say that man is the center of his existence or, or we're just animals, right? We've evolved and, and the evolution is, is, a, is a philosophical system that has kind of come out of humanism. And so we've evolved, so we're just animals. We're the center of our, our world. We can solve all of our problems through science and philosophy, they would say there's no supernatural element. You talk to anyone who's been to uni, one of the first things they'll say when you go to uni is like, there's no God. There has to be a naturalistic explanation. They say, if you want God, you can go down to the philosophy class. So they start with the presupposition that there's no God, and if there's no God, then there has to be a natural explanation for everything that happens in this world and has happened throughout all time. And so there's that humanistic philosophy that, that seeks to conform us to its image. And we don't even realize how subtle it is. I'm reading books, uh, science books on my kids. And they're talking about dinosaur bones being millions of years old. I read something the other day about this, this flightless bird somewhere in the, one of the islands of, in the Indian Ocean about how it, it, it's one of the few examples of an animal going extinct and then coming back to life. And what they, what, what they cite is, is the island was somehow submerged in water and the bird died out, and yet it came back somehow to its original place of origin and it's a flightless bird and, it, uh, and, and it's now a species in existence again. So you know, you, they, they'd say, oh, well, it's just an example of, of, of uh, random evolution happening twice. Well, 
you know, for us, when you, when you know the truth and the true reality of things, it's easy to see a worldwide flood submerged an island and then there's still some of the species left and guess what? They're going to go back to where they're familiar with if anything exists along the same lines of where they knew. So it's a humanistic philosophy and a humanistic system that, that approaches us in this world that, that, that fights for our attention. And then there's also a mysticism. You have people who seek after personal religious experiences. They look for hidden meanings. And you see this in, in yoga. You see this in transcendental meditation. You see this in uh, asceticism and a desire to earn God or God's favor through kind of some religious activity. Right? And a lot of that's crept into the church. It's crept into the church. It's crept into more formalized religious activity. And it's all about the experience. I would even say that it's crept into the charismatic movement where it's all about personal experience. It's crept into the Catholic church in the sense that the, the Catholic church, as a, as a false church anyway, it sets up a way of life that you have to live in order to earn God's favor. So you have mysticism, you have humanism, you have syncretism. Right? This is the merging of different philosophical thoughts. It's funny, we were, we were singing this song, um, It Is Well My Soul, and it said, though Satan shall buffet. When I was younger, I thought that was buffet. That Satan will buffet me. And I was thinking, well, that wouldn't be too bad. Uh, and then I realized buffet is different than uh, buffet. Um, well, you think about syncretism, you think about a lot of people that you talk to, it's like they go up to a buffet line. And they say, you know, I want some, I want some eggs and some bacon and some streaky bacon and I want some, I want some uh, egg whites and I want a pancake. And they're having a big buffet. Well, they, they kind of approach religion in that standpoint. You know, I, I want to do some religious activity and maybe I'll read the Bible. And then, you know, the Book of Mormon looks good and maybe I'll do some yoga. And you know what? I've got myself a new religion and it's great and it's me and God. And what they have, it's, it's them and a God of their own making that resembles themselves. Right? No one on their own is going to come up with a holy God that hates sin and demands total righteousness, you're not going to come up with that on your own. And so we, we kind of live in a syncretistic or syncretic society. Well, and we talk to people and it's, it's like they're governed, and they are, they're governed by their own rules. And see, these are all forces. And then we live in a world of relativism. And this is where all positions and values are equal. This is relative. The, the truth is relative to each individual person in each individual context. No view is regarded as more higher than the other. And you'll see this in our culture, whether it's, it's here in Australia or whether it's in the United States, in the Western world, tolerance is elevated to one of the highest virtues. And it's not just tolerance for tolerance's sake. Like I, I, as, as a biblical principle, we treat everyone with dignity, honor, and respect. Right? Biblical principle. So we're tolerant of people, but it's tolerance of their ideas and their, their philosophy and their religions as equal to your own. So it's not just tolerance for tolerance's sake. It's their, their, their religion, their, their ideas about God are equal to yours. There's no exclusivity. And so if you want to really uh, go against the relativism in our society, as you preach or teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, it said that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by Him. You want to make somebody mad in our tolerant, quote-unquote, society, be, quote-unquote, intolerant. So we live in a relatively uh, relativism in our society. There's no absolute truth. And this isn't new, by the way. Right? 
Jesus is standing with Pilate, and Jesus says, I'm coming to testify to the truth, and this is in John 18. And, and Pilate looks at him and he says, ha, what is truth? Right? This relativism isn't, isn't new. It's always been a battle for the truth. And so false religions, uh, whether it's the false teaching here in the Colossae, they all kind of integrate different aspects of these philosophy. And order, ultimately they're basically humanistic. And as we go through this book of Colossians, I want you guys to see that the answer to all of these philosophies, the answer to the world system that seeks to conform us to His image is Jesus Christ. And that's why I have Jesus Christ above all. He's above all philosophy. He's above all religions. He's the creator of all things. He's the head of the church. And He's Lord of lords and King of kings. And as we go through the book of Colossians, you're going to see a great picture of who Christ is in the fact that He is above all. And so you'll be armed with the resources that you need to combat these false philosophies and to keep yourself faithful. So we're going to be looking at two things. Let's go ahead and look at the book of Colossians. We're going to be looking at just two verses this morning. And don't worry, every sermon won't be just two verses. And we're going to look at a couple of verses this morning, and uh, we're going to dig in, and we're going to look at the description of God's ministers and the description of God's people. In Colossae chapter 1, this is verses 2. Excuse me. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So first of all, we want to look at the description of God's ministers. God has sent Paul, the apostle, by the will of God. He's writing this letter to these believers. And what's important about Paul writing these letters is that Paul has never met these people. Right? We learn a little bit later on that the, the, they heard the gospel from Epaphras, who's their pastor, and that he, in dealing with this false philosophy and these, this, this religious syncretism that's come into the Colossian church, in order to deal with this, he realizes that he needs help. And he travels from Colossae, which is located in the Lycus Valley, 125 miles or 200 kilometers to the city of Ephesus, gets on a boat, travels all the way to Rome, where Paul is currently in prison. Right, the end of the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome, he's in prison, that's where he writes Colossae. Okay? So Epaphras has traveled, you have Apostle Paul, he's a, he, is, he goes by his Gentile name, he's also known as Saul, he's the Apostle to the Gentiles. He was a Roman citizen of the city of Tarsus, which is a, a humongous Greek city in southern Turkey. So Paul grew up as a Jew, but he knew Greek tradition. He knew Greek philosophy. He knew Greek culture very well. So if I was God, and I'm not, and I wanted to choose somebody who knew the Old Testament really well because Paul says, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, or I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he knew Hebrew. He knew the Old Testament. If I'm going to choose somebody who, who knew the Old Testament, probably had most of it memorized, and knew Greek culture because he grew up in it, the Apostle Paul was the perfect choice. And it was a perfect choice because God made it. Right? So he was educated by a well-known rabbi, Gamaliel, and he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. We talked about this a little bit last time when we went through Ephesians 4, but the marks of an apostle. Now, there, there's a difference between somebody who's sent out, and that's the, the definition of an apostle, someone who's sent out. There are plenty of men that were sent out, and, and you could call them apostles in the, in the lowercase a sense. right? But for the official, uh, official position... Right, of apostle, there were very specific guidelines that you had to meet. The first and foremost is you had to see the risen Lord. Paul checks that off in Acts 9. You had to be commissioned directly by Jesus. 
Paul checks that off in, in Acts 9 as well. Jesus actually says, I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for me. Imagine that on a job description. You go in and you say, oh, you're hired. Now I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for me. And then so we know he was, he was commissioned. He was affirmed by other apostles in Galatians 2. Paul said he presented his gospel to the other apostles and they gave him the right hand of Christian fellowship. They affirmed what he was teaching was right. And then in, in 2 Corinthians 2, Oh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, he said he performed the signs and wonders of the apostle. They, they testified miraculously that Paul was of God, that he was an apostle by the will of God. And then finally, in Ephesians 2, we learn that the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church. So when you come across people today who claim to be apostles, in your mind you can go, well, have they seen the risen Lord? Have they been commissioned? Have the other apostles miraculously come back to life and affirm their ministry? Have they performed the signs and wonders of an apostle? And have they laid the foundation of the church? No. The, the, the office of apostle was a specific office for the foundation of the church. It's no longer in effect today. Okay? So let's keep going. Paul, said, or Paul says, I'm by the will of God. One thing when you, when you write a letter, and Paul's never never been to this church. He's never met him. So he wants him to understand that, look, what I'm writing to you is not of my own ideas. It's not something I've just made up. It's by God's will. He's been chosen by Christ as an apostle. He's been affirmed by the other apostles. It's, it's God is working in his life. God has ordained the fact that he's in prison and he is sending this letter and God has ordained this letter. What a, what a comforting thought, Right? This is a church, it's interesting, J.B. Lightfoot says that this is the most insignificant church, insignificant city that any of the letters in the New Testament were sent to. This was a small, potent city. It was on decline. The church actually meets, we learned our church actually meets in two different house churches. Or so many houses and it's two different house churches kind of combined. So it probably was only about maybe 40 members, 50 members. You're talking about a small church where Ephesians, Ephesus, excuse me, was probably a, a mega church, right? In the sense that we know from Acts, and you can infer from Acts, they actually met in an amphitheater. Now, a Roman amphitheater would hold many thousands. It doesn't say they filled the amphitheater, but it says they met in amphitheater. So they were too big for a house church. So the, the church in Ephesus was a big church, and here we have this little church. And God inspired the Apostle Paul to write two letters, not only the book of Colossae, but the book of Philemon, to this church. What, what a glorious thought. For us, we're a small church, right? In a relatively small city, in a small corner of Australia. But yet, God cares about us. It's not all about the big churches. It's not all about the big uh, the, the big groups of people that get together to worship Him in the big churches, the big mega churches. God cares about the small church. What a comfort it is by the will of God. Not only is it Paul, but he introduces his companion, Timothy, and he says, Timothy, my brother, by the will of God. And he says, Timothy, Timothy had spent, by this point, ten years with Apostle Paul. This is a great example of Paul, an older man, taking a younger man under his wing and training him. Right? He had been 10 years. He was a trusted companion and servant of Paul. He was actually ministering to Paul in prison. Right? You want to really show your love for someone, you go be in prison with them when you don't have to be. And you minister to them. You help them. Paul sends him to different churches in Acts 19. In Philippians 2, he says that... Uh, you know what? I love Philippians 2. Philippians, sorry, Philippians 2, he says that... 
Um, I have no one else of kindred spirit, this is Philippians 2.20, he's talking about Timothy, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, but not those of Christ. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. What a great picture. I would love someone to write that about me later on. Like he served the Lord like a child and his father. He served me. He was no one else I could turn to but Timothy. It's interesting, at the, end of, at the end of his life, Paul writes to Timothy, and you have kind of Paul's swan song or his, his deathbed when he writes in 2 Timothy, and he, and he writes to Timothy and he, and he just encourages him. He says, I've run, I've, I've, I've run the race. I've, I've done what God's called me to do. I'm a, I'm a drink offering being poured out. And it's interesting when you think about Timothy and you think about his life, Paul actually says that, Verse 15 of chapter 4, and he's talking about Alexander, the coppersmith. He did much to do me harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. But he said, be on guard against him, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Paul loved Timothy, and Paul was introducing Timothy to these believers. And and in God's sovereignty, this becomes important later on, because Timothy is later appointed the pastor of the church in Ephesus which was the main hub of Christianity in modern-day Turkey. There was, that, that is where from Epaphras came. Paul sent out Epaphras to the Lycus Valley from the church in Ephesus. So Timothy was appointed head of that church. And so Timothy would have had contact with these believers. And so you have Paul and you have these ministers. And you know what? It, it's not about them per se. It's about how God has used them. Because one of the things near me when I grew up, there's a marine base a U.S. Marine base. There's only there's one of two big ones in the whole country. One on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. One on the East Coast was not too far from where I lived. And I got to know a lot of Marines over the course of my life because you know, they, they would all not live on base and they would live around that area. And, uh, and these were great guys and they volunteered to serve their country. It's a huge base. Uh, 2nd Marine Division there. There's probably 50,000, 60,000 people. Um, that's just the, the fighting forces when you add logistics. You're talking about you know, 100,000 know, soldiers and, and their, uh, their, all their equipment and everything. Well, one of the things about the Marine Corps is they have a great slogan, a great motto. If you've never heard it, they call, it's called Semper Fidelis. And they shorten it Semper Fi. It's, just, it's Latin. And it means always faithful. Right? It shows a commitment to their core and to each other. And so when you think about Paul and you think about his life, he says in 1 Corinthians 4 that it is required of a steward that they be faithful. And then you get to the end of his life, and he's talking to Timothy, and he says, look, he says, Timothy, he says, from I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Right? So you have two faithful men here in this, in this, uh, in this letter. You have Paul, who is an apostle by the will of God, he's writing this letter according to God's will, and he's, he challenges them as well to be faithful. And we're going to read more about this as we get into the book, about the faithfulness God requires of His people based off their union and their position in Christ. So let's keep going. So we have a description of God's, God's ministers, and then we have a description of God's people. In verse 2 he says, "...to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ." Ladies and gentlemen, we are saints. Right? Let that sink in for a second. You're a saint. Right? It's not a special class of 
people. It's not a special class of Christians. It's people living their normal lives with the same fears and cares and joys, all in submission to the Lord. It's a false idea that, that you have to have this moral superiority and then after you die, you're declared a saint, you're declared a special class of person. Literally in the Greek, the word for saints is hagios, it's holy ones, or those that have been separated from common use to God. Right? The best example of that is the garments in Leviticus, the garments of the priests. You think about the priestly garments, they were set apart for God's use. In Leviticus chapter 8, it said when Moses and Aaron had Moses had Aaron and his sons come near. He washed them with water and he put on the tunic and he girded him with the sash, he clothed him with the robe, he put the ephod on him and the breastplate and he tied it to him and then he put the urim and the thurim. In verse 9, he also placed the turban on his head and in front of the turban he placed a golden plate, a crown, just as the Lord had commanded. And then verse 10, Moses took the anointing oil and he anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and he consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all the utensils and the basin and the stand, and he did it to consecrate them. So he set those normal, everyday things apart for a use that was holy. And that's the idea here. When you think about us as saints, think about believers, you as saints, you've been set apart for God's use. Right? It's a positional thing. You've been consecrated. You're not only to live for yourself and the things of the world, you're to be set apart for God's use. You're a saint. It's a position. It's God's work of election and salvation in your life. It's not an, a special case of, of, of moral living. Right? You are a saint. You know, I can't help but as I was thinking about saints, and I was trying to think of examples, and I started doing a little research. I think the most famous one right now... Um, is probably Mother Teresa. People would say, oh, Mother Teresa, you know, she, she was canonized, she was made a saint. But you really look at Mother Teresa's life. Mother Teresa was a universalist. The more and more she came in contact with Indian religions, the more and more she adopted those religions, she became, what? She became corrupted by her culture. Now, she was a diehard Catholic before, but in the course of those contacts, she actually said, and quote, she said, all is God. Buddhists, Hindus, Christians... They all have access to the same God. It was interesting with her, if you read a, a really good biography of her life, you'll see that there, there was a tremendous amount of inconsistencies in her life. Now, she dedicated herself to serving the poor, but she did it according to her own rules, the rules she made up. She refused to give medicines to kids who were, who were surfing terminally because she said oh, it's good for them to suffer. Right? So when we, when we lionize somebody, and I mean this from a Protestant standpoint, I've heard Protestants stand up and say, hey, this is a perfect example of love and charity and, and, uh, and, and Jesus' servanthood, but there were, very, there, there were a lot of inconsistencies in her life. Brother, brothers and sisters, it is not about uh, your moral life that makes you superior to everybody else. We're, we're to live morally, we live in obedience to Christ because of our love for Him, but we're all saints. We're all set apart for God's use. Right? And you think about it, if you're set apart for God's use, if you're, if you're um, in fact, if you're the robe, I'll give you that, if you're the robe that the priest would wear, and it says on the back of the robe, holy unto the Lord, and you would, you're the robe that the priest would wear into the holy of holies, that robe's been set apart. If, if you were to go and the, Moses was to take that robe and just start walking around and tending the sheep, it would get dirty and soiled, Right? 
you're taking something that God has set apart and using it for profane or common use. Brothers and sisters, you're saints. You've been set apart for a purpose, and that's to glorify God. You think about glorifying God, uh, that's something we often say as believers, I'm going to glorify God. How do we do that? We do it as we testify through our words and our life about who God is and what He's done. We live obediently to His will as revealed in the Scriptures. And we worship Him knowing that God is God. So we glorify Him. Guys, we understand that the world system we live in seeks us to conform us to its image. It's aggressive. It seeks control over your heart and your affections. But as a saint, you've been set apart, not for your own selfish desires, but for God's glory. The great English preacher Alexander McLaren says that saints are not an imminent sort of Christians. But all Christians are saints. And he who is not a saint is not a Christian. So believers, you are saints. You're also faithful brethren. The word here for faithful is trustworthy. And the word for brethren is just, it shows the mystery of the church, us combined together. Right? It's a, it's a faithfulness. If I asked all of you guys and said, hey, would you give Jesus $1,000? Right? Most of you are like, well, if I have it, yeah, I'll give Jesus $1,000. Here, here you go. Let me, let me write you a check. Sorry, that's more United States. Let me, let, me, let me get my card out and we'll transfer it to you. I'll give Jesus $1,000. But if I asked you in turn and said, would you give that $1,000 in 25 cent increments for the next, every day for the next 12 years? You'd be like, wow, uh, I don't know. That's a lot of work. We think about faithfulness, we often think about it in terms of the big things that we do. All right, I'm going to go on a mission trip to China. Right? Or I'm going to help producing a bunch of Bibles to go to India. Or, or I'm going to you know, serve on the praise team. It's, it's a big thing that we do. Right? But faithfulness is the little things that we do day by day in our walk with the Lord. Faithfulness is, is serving those in the church that need serving. Right? It's helping those that need helping. It, it's, it's giving. It's sharing the gospel with those that work. It's the little things of faithfulness to God. So at the end of your life, you can say to the Apostle Paul, I've run the race, I've fought the good fight, I've been faithful. Right? It's the little things. It's not those huge things, the huge events that, that happen from time to time that determine whether you're faithful. It's a consistency in your walk. In fact, Paul even says a little bit further, if you look down in verses, uh, verse 3, he says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, He heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love they have for the saints. Right? He says, because of the hope. So they have love for each other. This is their faithfulness demonstrated. And they have faith in God. Right? So it's those little things in your life. So not only are they, you saints, and just these believers are saints, they're faithful brethren, but he says they're in Christ and in Colossae. And when I started studying Colossae, and we'll deal with in Colossae first, um, the word here in Greek, you, can, you could say in or at, it's the same thing, it's a location. And so when you look at Colossae, remember I said before it's the smallest church, right? It's the most incons- insignificant place. It's so ins- insignificant that it hasn't even been excavated. It's a big mound. I mean, Jeff and I were talking about this the other day before he left. It, it, Colossae is just a mound. He's seen it. It's a big mound of dirt. They haven't dug it up. They haven't seen what's there. It's so insignificant. No one has done even any research to dig up and see what's there because there's nothing around it. Right? Other places, Laodicea, Hierapolis are more famous. They've had more work done. Everybody goes to Ephesus because it's Ephesus. Um, What's interesting, though, as I looked, uh, there actually is somebody getting ready to uh, excavate it. 
And of all people, it's Flinders University here in, uh, here in Adelaide that's getting ready to do some excavation on the, the, the mound in Colossae. But it's a, it's a city that was, that was um, on decline. It was located in the Lycus Valley by the Lycus River. It was, uh, had a large Jewish population. Antichius III, he resettled 2,000 Jewish families in this area. And so there was a, there was a large Jewish influence. In fact, in Acts 2, it actually says that there were, there were Jews from, from Fergia, uh, Fergia and Pergamum, which was the provinces of this area. So we know there were Jews, we know they made their way down to Jerusalem. It was 125 miles or 200K from Ephesus. Um, they made a living raising sheep, farming. They had this special type of wool that they were, they were known for as a certain uh, crimson color. But there was a, it was on a major trade route. So they had a lot of syncretic elements to their religion. They were influenced by philosophy. They were influenced by Greek thought, Greek pantheon. They were influenced by the Asian influence. Right? They, there was a lot of uh, asceticism. There was a lot of mysticism. And so we, we, knew that, we know that all this put pressure on the small church. Their culture was constantly seeking to conform it. And this was, this was a small church, like I said before. It was, it was a small church. Epaphras is their pastor. And he traveled to see Paul in Rome because he was concerned of their welfare. Right? So this church was dealing with doctrinal issues. They were dealing with practical issues. And Paul's response in the book of Colossae is that the religious activity that's not centered on Christ is worthless. It's a waste. Right? Christ is above all cultures. He, he's above all religious practices. He's above all creation. And He's the means of salvation. Paul focuses in in his response to these false teachers in Colossae as we're going to see over the next, uh, however long it takes, we're going to see about his response is Christ and Christ alone. And so, uh, like I said before, John Calvin says that this book distinguishes the true Christ from the fictitious one. And so, not only do we have them in Colossae, which is their location, and for us as believers, we're located in Adelaide, right? It's a small city, in a small corner of Australia, right? And so, what a joy it is for us to read the book of Colossae and know that it applies to us. But not only are, are they in Colossae, but he says they're in Christ. And this is a foundational truth of Scripture. It, it's, it's our location, it's our new identity. By the way, truth is reality as God sees it, right? So when we look at the world, we, we understand reality based on God's Word and how God understands things. And so when you look at our new identity, our identity for a lot of people is bound up in what they do. Think about it, when you ask somebody, hey, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing well. What do you do? Well, I work at such and such a place. Well, are you married? Yes, I'm, I'm married. as my husband. I have kids. Your identity is bound up in what you do. Right? Either you're your mom and you talk about your kids, you talk about your work, you're a husband, you talk about um, sports teams, but kind of your identity is based off, well, I'm, I'm in Adelaide, I, I, uh, I, I barrack for a port, or, well, the crows after last night, you, you, you barrack for different people. Uh, your identity, oftentimes our identity is bound up in, in where we live. You know, I'm an, I'm an Aussie, I'm an American, you know, I'm from here, I'm from there. The great thing about when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, our new identity is in Christ. It's rooted in Christ. A change has taken place. Colossians 1.13 says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. 
Our identity is in Christ. We're no longer like what we were. It's a total reorientation of your existence. Right? Your life is lived from this point on as in submission to Him. Right? We, we obey His Word. Right? We don't live for ourselves like we used to. Right? It's a new status. Right? We, we measure our status based off of where we are in Christ, not by our amount of religious activity that we have done or the good life that we, quote-unquote, good life that we've lived. Right? It's like I said in my prayer earlier, when we stand before the Lord and He asks us, why should I let you into my heaven? It's not, well, Lord, I lived a good life. Or I didn't sin that much. Or I treated people kindly. It's because I'm in union with Christ. I've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. Warren Wisby, the late Warren Wisby, who just passed away, the Gospel message does not center in a philosophy, a doctrine, or religious system. It centers in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Whether we live or whether we die, we are in Christ. All of our life, all of our spiritual life flows from Christ. He is the vine and we are the branches. In John chapter 15, He is the true vine. Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's who we are and where we're located from now on. So we can be in a physical location. We can be in Adelaide and be in Christ. Right? We can move to India Move to the United States, and guess what? I'm still in Christ. I am no longer part of the kingdom of this world. I am a part of the kingdom of our Lord. It doesn't matter where I go. Okay? So it's a, it's a fundamental truth. It's a new identity. I was reading a book recently about the uh, the Melbourne Olympics, uh, Olympics in Australia in 1956. It was called the Finley Games. And for those of you who are there, you may have may know what I'm talking about. I wasn't. And so the story, um, it was an interesting story I was reading, and it's by a book by Henry, or maybe, sorry, Harry, make sure I get it right, Harry Bloodstein. It's called Cold War Games. And the book basically gives an account of all of these Hungarian athletes and the attempts by the U.S. government to try to help these Hungarian athletes defect from the Soviet Union. Because... Previously, right before the games, Hungary had rebelled against the Soviet Union and its domination, and the Soviets came in with tanks, and they just crushed the uprising, killed over 2,000 people. And so a lot of these, these athletes, the U.S. was like, well, we're going to help them get out of this. And so what they did is they gave all these athletes uh, Aussie footy code names. And they basically said, anybody who defects... You're going to be. You're, we're going to. We're going to give you a new identity as an as a Aussie rules football player, and then we're going to go on a tour of the United States and and show the United States what Aussie rules football is. And so, as these Hungarian athletes defected, they were given they were given Aussie uh, rules identities, and they were they were advertised as uh, as really good Aussie football players. And then even the women, the, the ladies, they were, given, they were given men's names. And uh, what was interesting with the women is they, were, uh, give, they were said they were great Aussie rules football players from New South Wales. And those of you who know your history, in the, in the 50s, uh, it was all about rugby. And so, um, but they, they gave them new identities. They no longer were Hungarians and Hungarian athletes. They were Aussie rules football players. And then they got to the United States and that changed again and they had their freedom. But it's interesting in that sense, um, believers, you have been given a new identity. You're no longer who you were. 
I love the fact that, that Paul goes from being Saul to Paul. I had a Korean roommate when I was in college, and um, I knew him as Myung. He was Korean. He, and he spoke broken English, and we were helping him with his, with his English. We were teaching him very important words like spaghetti and pizza and, uh, and milk and you know, Coke, cola. Very important words, you know. But he was in, a, he was in school, and he was, he, was, um, he was learning. I had this guy ring me up. And he said, hey, can I, can I, and he said, yobaseo. Yobaseo is hello in Korean. You're learning a Korean word. I went, yobaseo. And he said, can I speak to Chris? And I said, I don't know any Chris. He goes, no, he lives there. I've been there. I said, I don't know a Chris. I said, I live here. My name's Chad. Uh, my friend David lives here. My friend Brian lives here. I don't know a Chris. No, he's there. I've been there. I said, the only person living here is Myung. Oh, yeah, yeah, let me speak to Myung. Okay, so after they talked, Myung came to me and he's kind of laughing. He goes, oh, no, I go by Chris in the United States. I said, well, you've only introduced yourself as Myung to me. I don't, I don't know that. But see, in the United States, he had a, he had a new identity uh, just to, to help him assimilate a little bit better. Brothers and sisters, you, you've been given a new identity. You're no longer who you were. You are in Christ. And that doesn't change no matter what happens in your life. That's how we can sing, It is well with my soul. Because our identity in Christ doesn't change. If you're under pressure from people at work who are, who are impugning you, you're still in Christ. If you go through trials where you lose loved ones, you're still in Christ. If you die, you are in Christ. I'll fly away. Oh, yes, I will. Because I'm in Christ. And I'll be in His presence for all eternity. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're in Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is your new identity. It is a new reality. Peter describes that reality. He says we are aliens and sojourners. Right? We're just here for a little while. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The great hope is one day the two will be combined. Right? When Jesus Christ returns with His saints, He will rule this earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will do away with the kingdom of this world and He will establish His eternal kingdom. Right? We are citizens of heaven. We are in Christ. So not only are we in a physical location like these believers who are in Colossae, but we also are. Uh, we also have the we are recipients of grace and peace from God. Look down in the last part of verse two. He says, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father." He says, "Grace." Grace can be summed up in all of Paul's theology. A.W. Tozer has a famous definition of grace. He says, "Grace is the good pleasure of God." that inclines Him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. To be simple, grace is the undeserved favor of God towards sinners. Right? It's one of God's very attributes. Exodus 34.6 says, God is compassionate and gracious. It's who God is. And by the way, grace is, is only possessed by God. Right? It comes to us. We don't control grace. We can't do religious activity to gain grace. Right? I have friends in the Roman that come out of Roman Catholicism, and one of the things about Roman Catholicism is you do the sacraments to get grace from God. Right? We don't gain God's, God's grace. It is an unlimited supply, it is inexhaustible. John 1 6 says, We have grace upon grace. 2 Corinthians 9 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. He makes His grace abound to us. 
So when Paul says, hey, grace to peace to you, he's asking for just more grace in their lives. Grace to obey God right, through the Holy Spirit. It's grace to live faithfully. Believers, you don't have to live on your own. What a glorious thought that God doesn't save us and then say, all right, here you go, he kicks us out the door, like you kick out your 18-year-old when he gets to be, here, go, go tend for yourself. It isn't like that. God, it, God, the Holy Spirit, indwells our heart and gives us grace to obey His Word. It gives us grace and strength to endure. Apostle Paul was under, undergoing a severe trial, and you read about this in 2 Corinthians, undergoing severe trials, and he kept praying that the trial, the thorn in his flesh, would be removed, and over and over the Lord cried and said, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Believers, God's grace is sufficient. And it's abundant. I remember going over to my grandfather's house, and every time, he had these two apple trees. And you know, as a kid, you, you don't really think about Apples are grown. They just kind of, oh, there's apples on the tree. They just kind of appear there. It's like our parents go and tell us to shake the money tree when we're young. You know, we don't know where the money comes from. Well, I don't know where the apples come from. It was just every time I went over there, there was just a tremendous amount of apples. We'd go over there and this tree would be full of apples. And then this tree would be full of apples. And it was just, it was awesome because you just go pick them off the tree. I mean, it was fantastic. There was an abundance. It just seemed like it was never ending, right? And that's the idea of God's grace. It's never ending. It's abundant. It's more than we ever could ask for. God gives His people. Right? His grace is sufficient for us to live in Christ. Right? To be faithful. And He gives us His peace. His peace is, is not just an idea like Beth and I went on a vacation one time and we were at this nice uh, place on the Oregon coast and we're at this hotel and we're looking and overlooking the coast and in the bay there was whales swimming around in the bay and we could see them and we're sitting there and it's, there's not a sound. We see deer walking in front of our window. Just nice restfulness and peacefulness. We're not talking about necessarily that kind of subjective peace. We're talking about an objective peace first and foremost which is a, a peace when God a reconciliation with God. We were His enemies in Romans 5. We were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We have been made peace with God through the Gospel. Through the sacrifice of the Son. So we are no longer estranged for God, haters of God, enemies of God. We are in Christ. And so we have peace with God. Right? Peace is, is, is the absence of conflict. There's no conflict between us and the Lord anymore. We're His. So and objectively we have peace. But then there's a subjective element that comes through God's grace. It's supernatural. It's positive. It's permanent. Philippians 4, it, 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 it's above all comprehension. We have a clear conscience. There's no guilt in our lives for what we did in the past because we know God's forgiven us. We, there's guilt in the present because we're confessing our sin, being cleansed. It's a tranquility of soul. You better believe the author of It Is Well With My Soul had peace. It's a peace that is not determined by circumstances. Have you guys ever, you ever heard the story of It Is Well With My Soul? Right? I encourage you to read it. And I'm, I'm probably not going to get it completely accurate. Uh, there's so much to it. But he, uh, he sent his wife, and I believe it was two kids, I could be wrong about the number, across the Atlantic from the U.S. to Great Britain. When in the course of that trip, that ship struck another ship and it sank. Well, the author of him got word, telegram from his wife saying, saying only one survived. It was his wife. So he got on the ship as soon as he could, booked his passage to go meet his wife, his grieving wife in London. 
And he gets to the point in the ocean where he knows where the previous ship went down. And he knows that the bodies of his children are lying somewhere beneath the, the ocean. And he writes, he pins that great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. I'll give you context. So when you sing that hymn, that's peace. It's a peace that no matter what has happened or is happening, that it is well with our souls. We're in Christ. He loves us. He gives us grace. And we can have a tranquility of soul knowing that no matter what we're going through, God is there and that He loves us. You see, Paul is reminding these believers that they have grace and they have peace with each other. He's reminding them that they can have that peace in their hearts that only Christ can give. Brethren, we, we are in Christ. We are in Adelaide. We are saints. And we must live faithfully to our new identity, our calling. We've been set apart for God's use. We are His people. We are to glorify Him. Our culture, this fallen world, remember where we live, seeks to conform us to its image. We have to remain strong in our faith. And we have to look to God's words for the answers to our questions. What's interesting is about 25 k's north of Colossae was the city of Heropolis. Heropolis was known for its hot springs. In fact, you can go today and still hop in these hot springs that people have been using for thousands of years. All right? But in between Colossae and Heropolis was the city of Laodicea. Okay? So Heropolis was known for its hot springs. Colossae was known for its cold water. Because the Lycus River right near the city of Colossae would drop into a gorge. And it would go down and it would go underground for about 100 meters and then come back up. And in the course of dropping and going underground, it would cool the water. And so Colossae was known for its crisp, cold water. Heropolis was known for its hot springs. When between these two was Laodicea. Laodicea had no good water source, so they would pipe in water from a nearby hot spring. And you can see these pipes still exist today. And that hot water, in the course of going from the hot spring to Laodicea, would turn a lukewarm. We know in Revelation that Jesus Christ decries those members of the church in Laodicea. He says, either be cold or hot. Don't be halfway. Don't be so influenced from your culture that you look like your culture and you can't even tell you're a Christian. Brothers and sisters, what good is it for salt if it's not salty? Right? What use does salt have if it's not salt? It's just, it's just dirt. Right? Brethren, we are saints and we've been set apart for God's use. We have new identity that we didn't have before. And even though we live in a physical location, our identity is in Christ. It's our responsibility to live faithfully. Not to try to earn God's grace, but out of love and appreciation for what He's done for us. This faithfulness is not measured in worldly terms like success in business, but it's recognized by our conformity to the character of Jesus Christ Himself. To have a character in life which reflect Him is sure evidence that we are in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we are in Christ. That no matter what happens to us, no matter where we're located, that our condition before You hasn't changed. Lord, I pray for faithfulness. Pray that You would give us grace to live faithfully. We know that it is abundant to us and is sufficient. Lord, it's more than we could ever need. Lord, help us to stay close to You. 
Give us a heart that desires to know You more as You revealed Yourself through Your Word. Help us to be faithful in our actions. Lord, we love You and we pray this prayer in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.